It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. All right, boys and girls, we are back with another edition of the Ben Dominich Podcast brought to you by Fox News. You can check out all of our podcasts at foxnewspodcast.com. I hope that you'll rate, review, and subscribe to this one and share it with your friends if you find it of interest. Today, I have a conversation for you with Fred Flights. He is the vice chairman of the America First Policy Institute, the Center for American Security there. He previously served as the chief of staff and executive secretary of the National Security Council under President Donald Trump. Uh, He's long been uh, a member of the foreign policy community, serving in a number of different roles. And it was one of the uh, the conversations that we had in the past uh, that prompted me to go back to him this time around for his perspective, particularly on uh, the rising influence of China and the challenge and threat that it represents, as well as the reassessment that a lot of people are making about uh, the foreign policy perspective going into the future uh, and into future administrations, what we can expect from a future Republican administration, be it you know the return of the former president or someone else, uh, and how it can avoid the kind of mistakes that we saw happen under its leadership in the past. This is a conversation from about two weeks ago. So in case uh, you wonder why we didn't touch on uh, the, the holiday weekend dump, for instance, of the Afghanistan uh, reassessment, uh, the, uh, the White House, of course, says uh, that it's not there to point fingers, but it obviously pointed a lot of fingers at the Trump administration. Uh, that's the reason why. Uh, Fred Flights, coming up next. Hey, folks, it's your man, Keyshawn Johnson, here to talk about Angie, formerly known as Angie's List, your go-to home services, marketplace for getting all your jobs done well. Now, you might be wondering, what exactly is Angie? Well, let me tell you, it's the nation's largest home services marketplace connecting over 150 million homeowners with skilled professionals to tackle any project big or small as a homeowner myself i always have things i want to work on for my house whether it's general home renovations or fun projects like putting in a pool with over 200,000 pros in their network angie makes it a breeze to research, compare, and hire pros, ensuring every job is done well. Whether you're fixing a leaky faucet or planning a full kitchen renovation, Angie's got your back. And get this, folks. Angie's pros aren't just any old contractors. They're your neighbors, often running small businesses right in your community. Plus, they've been rated and reviewed by others in your area. So you know you're getting quality service. So why stress over home projects when you can turn to Angie? From finding the best price to scheduling a pro at your convenience, Angie's got you covered every step of the way. So get started today at Angie.com. That's Angie.com or download the app today to get started on getting all your jobs done. That's Angie, your trusted ally in home services. Fred Fleiss, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Great to be here. I want to talk to you about a number of different issues. There was this excellent you know, piece that you wrote along with Keith Kellogg at National Review responding to a piece uh, from John Bolton, and we will get into that. But right now, uh, right in front of us in terms of the uh, debate at the, on Capitol Hill, 
is this question regarding TikTok. And I wanted to get your reaction to the kind of debate that we're seeing there. Uh, it hasn't happened yet, but I assume that today, the day that we are talking, uh, Josh Hawley, the senator from uh, Missouri, is going to go down to the floor. He will ask for unanimous consent uh, for his bill, his five-page uh, bill introduced by Ken Buck on the House side uh, that bans TikTok. Uh, he wants to pass it, and it's going to be objected to, I believe, by Rand Paul, probably, Um TikTok is on the devices of millions, millions of Americans. It's used, it's interacted with by them in many ways. I'm sure you saw the hearing that happened uh, with their CEO, uh, one that it was widely derided as being a, a real you know, failure on their part. What's the America first perspective on TikTok? and how the government ought to respond to it in a responsible way that doesn't conflict with our own constitutional values? It's a good question because I don't think we should propose lightly the idea that the, that the government should shut down uh, uh, what is basically a, a, a public forum. Uh, but in this instance, there's substantial information that a hostile power is using it to collect data against the United States, to push propaganda. And I think we saw this during the hearing when the TikTok CEO, when he was asked whether the Chinese Communist Party has collected information or attempted to collect private information on Americans, he said, I've seen no evidence of that. Now, the, the answer Congress was looking for was, well, no, or that couldn't happen. I can assure you that didn't happen. And, and then he was asked, is it true that they have suppressed information of the oppression of the Uyghurs and the Chinese Communist Party and, and the crackdown of Hong Kong. And he said, no, well, those statements just aren't true. And I, I think, frankly, that hearing was such a catastrophe. Even the liberal Democrats who want to support TikTok, even they had to condemn him. So I, I know where Senator Paul's coming from, but I think on this instance, this, this software really has to be banned. You know, the thing that really frustrates me about this conversation is, it's an example of where America's enemies use our own, you know, enlightenment-based, freedom-based, constitutional-based approach to gain access to our markets and try to manipulate people in ways that are really disturbing. I mean, I'm thinking about this, you know, uh, more long-term. It's, it's like if we allow communist China to have this type of footprint – over our media conversation and TikTok is a media company. Let's be clear about that in terms of their, in terms of the way that they approach things. It's, it's totally uh, warping the kind of normal conversation that we would have as Americans. This doesn't take place in, you know, kind of an isolated black box. It's our enemies, America's enemies. And I do believe China is an enemy, not even an adversary, but an enemy. Um, you know, invading us using our, uh, you know, freedom loving uh, laws against us in order to try to manipulate our people. And, you know, at least according to a lot of social science research, manipulating a lot of our young people in ways that are intending to damage us as a society. How do we push back against that without 
losing the values that we care very much about uh, that come uh, from the Constitution, from our founders, from, you know, the idea that we ought to have free speech in America? Well, I think we have to uh, aggressively put forward the case that uh, platforms like this really are a threat to the security of our country and also make the point that this platform is available in China in a very censored form, a very measured form that promotes China, promotes education. Children can't be on it for, for very long. And all these platforms like Fox News and CNN and Twitter, they're not available in China. Everything is censored. They don't have the ability to, to, to go online to see what's going on in the rest of the world. Yet the Chinese Communist Party freely manipulates and takes advantage of the Western media to undermine our security and freedom and to promote China. And look, the Iranians do this, the Russians do this. Our enemies know we have a free system. They're happy to use it, but they won't duplicate it at home. Mm -hmm. So, uh, Fred, you wrote what I thought was a very excellent response uh, to uh, Ambassador Bolton. Uh, you know, obviously, you know, someone who I have my own gripes with in terms of his policy perspective at National Review, pushing back against the idea that an America first approach to foreign policy under President Trump was something that actually diminished us as a nation. Personally, I think that, you know, the foreign policy uh, shift that has happened is one of the most beneficial things that has come out of the last decade within, uh, you know, Republican circles, the circles of the right, etc. You know, I am very much opposed to the idea of utopianism as being the animating force of our designs on the Middle East, for example. Tell me a little bit about what you think is going on there. There is this foreign policy blob that you know, absorbs so much of the Washington conversation and, you know, efforts so much a diminishment of anyone who wants to criticize its obvious failures. You have been on the receiving end of that, I know. Uh, so tell me a little bit about what you think is actually going on there and why, uh, the you know, the country and the frustrations with its shift uh, are something that is animating uh, this uh, this blob and kind of striking back and trying to reassert itself as being a dominant force within the you know overall and uh, scheme of the right. Well, I want to give Rich Lowry and National Review a lot of credit. They have run articles that have said that the America First approach to national security is isolationism. It's similar to the pre-World War II isolationists under uh, Charles Lindbergh to keep the U.S. out of war. But then they allowed General Kellogg and I to run this piece, which I think was a strong rebuttal to that. America First, the America First approach to national security has transformed thinking on national security, not just among conservatives, but among all Americans. And this is what it is. Strong presidential leadership, a strong military, but the prudent use of military force to keep us out of unnecessary wars and only use military force when our strategic interests are at risk. It's not isolationism. It's not America alone. It is working with allies, but it also insists that our allies carry their weight in defending their regions. Now, Ambassador Bolton, I've known him a long time. He's a great guy. But he has repeated what we're hearing from the blob on the right and left, that America first is isolationism. Now, we know President Trump isn't an isolationist. We know he worked with our allies around the world, but he was tough with them. Frankly, NATO is stronger today 
because President Trump pressed it so hard uh, to, to get up to the amount of money it's supposed to spend on its own defense. And look at the close relationship that President Trump had with the Japanese uh, uh, prime minister. The relationship he had with the, 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 the South Korean president was a little bit rocky, but I think it was still productive. Uh, so I, I just think that it's easy to rebut this, but we have to work hard because the left and, well, the, well, let's say the blob is relentless in misrepresenting this approach to national security. Well, let's let's talk about that for a minute, because I remember getting into an argument with Daniel Pletka, the uh, uh, vice president at AEI, well. um, over over uh, this issue back in, I believe, 2015, when it was not at all clear that Donald Trump was going to become the nominee, where she was alleging Lindberghism on the part of Ted Cruz, who was someone who was I, I was advocating for at the time, because I was... You know, I believe that, you know, his approach to foreign policy of saying, you know, look, these these wars of utopian, you know, vision were wrong and we need to, you know, readjust our, our foreign policy accordingly. And the the arguments that were being advanced were basically that anything that does not match up with what the blob wants, what they believe is the the apex goal they just immediately uh, malign it as being isolationism, Neville Chamberlain, uh, Charles Lindbergh, etc. How do you push back against that? Because it's it's ridiculous. It's, in the same sense that they uh, you know place every world leader that they have objection to as Hitler. I'm not saying. Vladimir Putin is good. I'm just saying he's not Hitler. You know, it's it's not he doesn't have camps where he is literally burning Jews. You know, it's it's one of these things where can we can we have a conversation about foreign policy that actually balances this these things without uh sort of sweeping very quickly into these World War II analogs that don't bear any representation of the actual position of the person involved. I think one of the most telling things we heard during the Biden presidency on his national security strategy was when he went to Europe and French President Macron welcomed him back to the European club. Well, you know, President Trump's approach to national security rejected that. He rejected mm -hmm. the European club, the United Nations, these global elitists, these globalists who would like to see the U.S. sign treaties like the Paris Climate Accord and other agreements that are great for the globals, they're great for other countries, but they're bad for the American worker, they're bad for our economy, they're bad for our country. We can't be using our troops for nation building any longer or to change governments. We have problems here at home. And I think that's a message that's going to resonate. The elitists will never believe that. They're going to keep throwing isolationists around. But look, we have so many good examples of why this works and what the American people want. So look, Danielle Pletka, I love her. She's great. I've known her a long time. But on this issue, I just think she's dead wrong. <laughs> I think that there's so many people who uh, don't understand the nature of why we have the foreign policies that we do. They believe that, you know, sort of, it seems like it's at a remove from the people that they elect. They try to elect people who will push back against that foreign policy blob. But then, you know, they feel like they either get compromised or, you know, there are other influences at play. How can we shift to a foreign policy that is more representative of the American people and their interests? 
Well, let's talk about uh, Trump's decision to move the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem. Now, lots of presidents have said they're going to do that, but once again, into office... Oh, the, uh, Eisenhower, I think, even. Yeah. You know, like, it's, 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 let's say, you, you everybody do says that. that. Yeah. Start, a, start a war with, with the Arabs. That's just off the table. And that's the elitist position. That's the globalist position. That is the establishment position. And President Trump said no. And I think whoever is president 2025, and I hope it is not Joe Biden, it's going to be an America first president who's not going to defer to the establishment globalists who won't do the right thing because it's the way we always did it or because the establishment thinks we should do something else. That was a very good move. And every expert, every, every establishment expert I know said that that was going to result in war or terrorism. Really? Didn't happen. <laughs> it, it, it was amazing how much it didn't happen in the, in the sense that they, they, they predicted it just solidly. It's obvious there's going to be massive backlash to this, and then none of it happened. And it was like, well, maybe you should question your priors if something like this goes down and you don't have the result that you're expecting. I am very concerned, as I'm sure you are, about the ramifications of the increased aggressiveness of China toward Taiwan. How can we properly support them in this moment? How can we also make sure that China is reluctant to engage in the kind of activity that it's telegraphing and, you know, make sure that Taiwan knows they will also have to do this for themselves in a certain sense. They, they, this is not something where Americans are ripe to put our troops on the ground or American lives at stake to defend an island that they really don't know about. But clearly, the idea that China is going to, you know, control ultimately, you know, the shipping lanes, the the transfer of, of products around the globe, the, you know, ability that they would have if they took Taiwan would be very much to the detriment of America and the West. What should we be doing right now? You know, it's it's really astounding to see how much more unstable the world is right now than it was two years ago. And that's because of this administration. It's because of President Biden's weakness, his unserious foreign policy that makes climate change the, the main priority. Did you hear John Kerry say the other day, we yeah. have to meet the Chinese and the Russians to talk about climate change? <laughs> well, I think there's some other things going on in the world right now. Uh, you know, Putin putting tactical nuclear weapons in Belarus, what's going on with Taiwan. But China, you know, China's been an existential threat for a long time. It's so much worse now because it sees an opportunity. It sees a weak American president. It sees an unserious foreign policy. And that's why it has stepped up its threats to Taiwan. And it worries me that there could be an attack before this president leaves office. Right now, experts tell me that China probably couldn't prevail in, in such an invasion. We have to give Taiwan the weapons it needs to hold off the Chinese so they'll think twice before going. But the, ends, the, the ultimate solution is we have to have a competent president with a strong America first foreign policy, and we're going to have some dangerous times until we get one. Let's talk about Ukraine for a moment. The, the situation there is one that I think has unfortunately been colored uh, in an inaccurate way in American uh, political dynamics. You know, first off, I would say I agree with everyone who says we shouldn't be giving them a blank check. You know, this is not a situation where we should be 
sending the money without understanding where it's going. Number two, though, I actually like proxy wars. Fred, you're, you're allowed to disagree with me here. Proxy wars where Americans don't die, but where we're paying for something that actually diminishes an adversary, from my perspective at least, is a good thing. But I don't believe that we have the wherewithal within this administration or the understanding of the Russians within this administration to bring this to a close in a way that would be beneficial for the West, for the European Union, for everyone involved. What should we be doing differently to get to that point? Because I think most Americans, Democrat or Republican, whether they have skepticism about Ukraine or not, they want to get to the point where we end this war, and they don't want to see a point where that involves Vladimir Putin and the Russians just running roughshod. I said earlier what an America first approach to national security is and not putting our troops at risk. I don't think an endless proxy war is consistent with an America first approach to national security no, either. Of course not. We're running down our military arsenal. We're creating a situation that could lead to escalation. It could lead to the use of nuclear, nuclear weapons. Uh, I support uh, giving Ukraine the weapons it needs right now to stop a Russian offensive, to push them back, pressure uh, Putin to come to, 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 the, to the negotiating table. But realistically, I don't think Ukraine's going to get back most of its territory. I wish that wasn't the case. I'd like to see a ceasefire, and we will discuss the, the territorial issues over time. But I think Ukraine will lose a, a protracted uh, war of attrition. I think that's where Europe is going. And it worries me right now that this administration won't even talk about a ceasefire. It d- won't put forward a peace plan. Its solution is simply throw weapons there endlessly, thinking somehow that will allow Ukraine to win. That is not going to work. Do you believe that we need to dramatically step up uh, the uh, creation of uh, munitions that apparently have been you know, just boiled through when it comes to this Ukraine conflict in a way that uh, apparently seems to have been unexpected? No, absolutely. And there's, there, there are many uh, instances of that. There's concerns that, that missiles that we want to send to Taiwan aren't available right now. They're not available for our use if we had to use them somewhere. Uh, in, I mean, these are complicated. There's advanced electronics in these missiles. So yeah, that's if that hasn't been done, I hope that starts soon. Fred, I know you're someone who takes American foreign policy very seriously. It's the focus of your career. It's what you've worked on. I personally feel like American foreign policy, especially on the right, uh, has been relatively out of touch uh, since the end of the Cold War. They don't really know kind of how to adjudicate the different challenges that they're dealing with. I worry that when it comes to the concerns that we're facing over the coming decade, that they're ill-prepared for it. I'm curious whether you agree with me on that. I'm also curious, do you believe that a kind of a redefinition of the America first goals could be something that could change that in a positive way to say, look, at every issue, at every point, we need to be putting the interests of Americans first and not some fly by night, you know, assumptions about the way that we could change the world. 
I watched with frustration during the Trump administration to see the president had great policies, but he didn't name people who would implement them. And we saw Rex Tillerson and H.R. McMaster. They were terrible. They didn't want to implement the president's policies. They didn't want to move the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem. They opposed the president on getting rid of the nuclear deal with Iran. But at the lower levels at the State Department... And, and was- can I just suggest, I, I, just to interject, I have enormous respect for H.R. I don't have that same respect for Rex. But the point is that, like, they they were opposed to something that definitively worked when you did it. So, it like, that that's kind of the proof of, of saying, you know, well, well, maybe you should reevaluate your priorities. I, I have respect for HR, too. He came into office opposing things that the president he was going to serve wanted to do. Yeah. So he shouldn't have taken the job. I think there's no, a lot of people. No, I, I, I understand that. Yeah. But this is a bigger problem at lower levels of the State Department, uh, the Defense Department, the National Security Council. We didn't bring in people who were prepared to implement the president's policies and the permanent bureaucracy we didn't get control of them. So the America First Policy Institute, we have an aggressive program right now to get the people ready to staff the next administration on day one. I mean, we're even talking about how can people get cleared quickly? What documents will they need to get a security clearance? How can they get through Senate confirmation? How will we you staff to, these agencies? To, um, Fred, you got to nuke the bureaucracy from orbit. It's the only way to be sure. <laughs> No, I, I, I completely understand what you're saying. I just, uh, my frustration is this. I, uh, I, you know, sort of got into the conservative movement at the end of the 90s and uh, and came up with, you know, obviously I was, a, 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 you know, worked in the speechwriting office for George W. Bush, you know, uh, worked for John Cornyn as a speechwriter, you know, was, was aware of all of this. And the concern that I have is that we are still seeing the the cement of these people who were early adopters of a neocon agenda yes in the early 2000s they still are here they are still tops of the list for advisors uh for various people and it's like no you you got these things wrong like i just definitively whatever you you think of in terms of whatever other direction we ought to go you got these things wrong so how do we change that how do we make sure that the, that the next president i mean i don't know who i don't know who it's going to be but you know i i am very concerned that we don't have the kind of people you know ready organized prepared to deal with the world the dangers that it uh includes the challenges that it includes in a responsible way and instead, we're just going to default to, well, they used to be in this job, which, you know, obviously includes uh, John Bolton, someone who you, who you were responding to in your piece. I think there's a set of people in Washington, a set of conservatives. They serve in government. They re, they work with the establishment to go native. When they're out of government, they keep their head down. They would never go in your program because they don't want to have a written record. They don't want people to know what they stand for. They go back in government and they repeat the same thing all over again. The wonderful thing about the never Trump letters is that a lot of these people signed them and that kept them out of government. So actually, the Trump administration was not as bad as it might have been in terms of personnel, because some of these people, no matter who they knew, no matter which senator they played golf with, they just couldn't get in because they signed a never Trump letter. 
AFPI's American Leadership Initiative is looking for good America First people to do what you just said, to push America First policies and try to weed out these people who've been part of the problem and come back Republican administration after Republican administration and simply push the same old, same old establishment approach. Well, let me give you one more example of that. I think that one thing that the uh, neoconservatives were very good at uh, in the early 2000s was uh, credentialing. The idea that they would sort of take someone who hadn't really done that much, but then they would build them up with awards, fellowships, articles. You know, it would be the sort of thing where, wait a minute, why is this person in this senior position when they haven't actually, you know, done anything really? And it would turn out to be, well, they wrote this book, they got this fellowship, they got this opportunity, and they ended up in this position for that reason. I feel like the America first approach, one which says, we know, we are not interested in risking American blood and treasure for foolish situations, but we do believe in a robust American approach when it comes to military use and trade that projects our power around the world and that, you know, balances back against communist China and, uh, and their allies. You know, I, I think that's something where we really need more of that credentialing or that kind of, of, uh, promotion, the, the fellowships, the, the kind of, uh, uh, relationships that will allow such people, uh, to, uh, proceed within, these various, you know, government jobs where those types of things that don't matter anywhere else matter. Well, as you know, it's hard being a conservative. All these cushy fellowships and and and, and uh, research grants—they're all available to to the neocons and people on the left. They go to Harvard's JFK School. Yep. They get positions with the Ford Foundation. They're with the Council of Foreign Relations. Those people won't hire me. They would not hire you. No. And, I mean, we Never. have to create these positions, <laughs> but they're not there right now. And that's why we need organizations like like AFPI and Heritage to try to find the good names of people who haven't who haven't had a fellowship at Harvard. That that doesn't mean you know what you're talking about. Just, just that just means the just means the establishment likes you and yes. gets them in the government because these people are lining up. They're getting their they're getting their contacts with the Senate so they can get quickly confirmed. And, and um, but I'll tell you, I think AFPI is wise to this, and I'm, I'm hoping we can make a difference on it. Last question for you, Fred. You know, I I look back at sort of the history of Republican foreign policy, and I try to find different people who are, you know, uh, interesting thinkers, people who have, you know, perspectives on things that are not, you know, necessarily what you would expect. I'm curious if you have any recommendation for my listeners of people they ought to read, books they ought to read, or people they ought to look at as being examples of the kind of foreign policy that we ought to pursue in America, as opposed to the one that has been dominated by the neocons under George W. Bush, the blob under Barack Obama, you know, and again, the recurrent JV version of the blob under Joe Biden. Um, what should they look to? What book should they read? What counsels should they seek in order to find the kind of path that we ought to have here in America? Well, you know, the, the the man I recommend is General Keith Kellogg. He's he's the co-chair of AFPI Center for American Security. I work with him, and I knew him when I was in 
the Trump administration, but I've really come to admire him, his level-headed approach to the war in Ukraine. And I think as, as a three-star general, for him to advocate what America First means, and look, if, if, if you're a general, you know what war means. You don't want unnecessary wars. You want to keep us out of wars. To hear him argue this, he wrote a great memoir on his time in the White House. I would mm-hmm. advise your, your listeners and readers to, to, to check it out. Uh, he, he would be the guy I'd recommend they, they look into. Fred, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Great to be here. Thanks. More of the Ben Dominish podcast right after this. So I wanted to offer a little bit of a perspective on one of the stories that's probably taken over your news feeds in the past couple of days. In addition to that Afghanistan report the White House dropped, as well as a Title IX uh, step that they took uh, related to trans athletes, there was also something else that came out uh, right before the holiday weekend, and that was these dueling opinions from a Texas judge and uh, a judge in Washington state on the question of the abortion drug uh, mifepristone. It's one of these things that uh, is you know, certainly going to be controversial, is going to proceed up to the appellate level and potentially even to the Supreme Court, though I'm not sure it will get that far. Uh, from my perspective, the Texas case has a number of issues related to it uh, that would prevent it from perhaps uh, re- receiving the kind of standing uh, that those involved sought. But I wanted to talk a little bit about the shift in abortion uh, that's happened in America, and that's only likely to accelerate in the post-Dobbs environment. Um, the Guttmacher Institute, which is obviously pro-abortion, but uh, has some pretty good statistics on this, especially compared to a number of government providers who are slower and worse at providing them, uh, had uh, conducted an annual, uh, a periodic census of their uh, abortion providers, showing that in 2020, medical abortion, uh, medication abortion, I should say, accounted for 53% of all U.S. abortions. It actually uh, went all the way up to 54% in their most recent 2022 data, a significant jump from the 39% level in 2017, the last time that Guttmacher had looked at that question. Uh, And of course, a huge jump from all the way back in 2001 when it was just 6% of abortions. This is an interesting uh, situation because it's a level that I think that a lot of people would be surprised here. They think of abortion as being something done in clinics or in hospitals. But in reality, uh, the majority of abortions are these medication-based abortions. This is uh, due to the fact that the French drug RU486, you may remember that from back in the 90s as a point of controversy, uh, was donated, essentially, the manufacturing rights to it, to an American nonprofit, the Population Council. It's a population control group founded along with a bunch of eugenicists uh, by John D. Rockefeller III back in 1952. Uh, They engaged in a bunch of of speech that I think you'll find is pretty abhorrent if you look back at it now. They also uh, transferred the rights uh, the Population Council did in in the 90s to a shady LLC that was based in the Cayman Islands. Uh, The Washington Post, by the way, uh, called them at the time secretive and obscure. So it's not just uh, pro-lifers who say that about the thing. Um, The spokesman uh, at the time declared that they were a humanitarian outfit, even though they were technically for-profit. They said they they weren't doing this to get rich. Uh, It's not going to make me many money. Uh, though it actually uh, turned out, of course, to be extremely profitable. Uh, the magazine, uh, the leftist magazine, Mother Jones, had a deep dive on this a few months back because it's all about the legal fight, basically, between the different people feuding over the millions and millions of dollars that they've been able to make from these abortion pills. 
Uh, this brings us to these uh, rulings, which obviously, uh, you know, are on the one side, there's a Trump appointee, and on the other side, there's an Obama appointee, as you might expect. Um, but it, it kind of brings into perspective what this drug has done in terms of the, the process it's been through in the last 22 years. Uh, when it was initially approved, the FDA approved it with all these different caveats about how it was uh, supposed to be administered. Um, you had to have in-person dispensing from the doctor to the patient. You had to have secure shipping procedures and tracking systems. You had to have authorized uh, distributors and agents, and you had to have the uh, the normal kind of back and forth in terms of of you know initial appointments and follow up appointments to make sure that patients were okay. One of the big things that's of concern, obviously, with this type of medication is that if you don't really know what's going on with the unborn child involved and how old they are, then you run the risk of, of hemorrhage, of uh, you know, of infection, of all sorts of different uh, negative ramifications, including ones that could even result in death. You also need to determine whether it's an ectopic pregnancy or not, uh, because that's something that uh, would change the way that the drug works. And it's one of these situations where in the eagerness to push this out, in the eagerness to get this into the hands of people who want it, uh, the FDA has flouted a lot of those same normal rules uh, in ways that uh, really have changed things. In 2016, there were a bunch of changes this made, uh, including altering dosages, expanding the gestational age uh, that a, a woman or girl can abort using uh, this method from 49 to 70 days, uh, eliminating the requirements that the, you have to have the administration uh, occur in clinics. Uh, broadening the windows uh, of, of when this uh, administration can occur, uh, removing the requirement for in-person follow-up exams, uh, and eliminating the requirement for prescribers to report all non-fatal serious adverse events from these drugs. Now, that one should stick out to you because it means that the numbers that we have to go on for these adverse effects uh, are really more difficult to acquire. And the, while there have been a number of studies on this point, we clearly have an absence of a full awareness of the data of those who've experienced adverse events because of the prescription of these drugs. Um, even then, even with a limited portfolio, there have been numerous events, including you know, uh, even death in the case of some extreme circumstances, uh, that have you know, showed that this was a drug that had some negative ramifications it was, if it was taken particularly too late in the process of the pregnancy or if there were other issues going on that weren't detected in what would have been uh, found in a normal doctor's visit or with an ultrasound. So this all seems to me to be a situation where women's health would indicate that, you know, uh, trying to avoid sepsis or hemorrhage or life-threatening situations or anything like that uh, because of taking this pill should be something that should be a priority. Uh, in other words, that we shouldn't treat it necessarily the way that, is, uh, you know, something like uh, the normal contraceptive pill is treated or even the over-the-counter plan B is treated uh, because they don't necessarily have those same ramifications that early in the pregnancy. Uh, but of course, this is going to get, uh, you know, pushed into the same partisan, uh, you know, uh, war over abortion that we've seen, you know, as usual. But it seems to me that if you care about women's health, shouldn't we be talking about restoring some of those restrictions that were in place until just a few years ago? Uh, I mean, the, the dark times of 2015 doesn't seem like a, a time when the, the, the lack of drug availability was a real issue here. Um, and then, of course, there's also the fact that thanks to the pandemic, that it was used as an excuse by the FDA um, to expand the way that people could receive this drug, including uh, via mail, including with much lower thresholds in order to uh, obtain it. 
So look, you know, either you care about women's health or abortion is your only priority. Uh, and from my perspective, that's something where, you know, once again, there should be a place for people who are pro-lifers to argue against what is a dominant, expansive media narrative that is simply going to turn into uh, those uh, evil Republicans are, are, you know, going to be seizing your rights and coming after you and taking pills out of your hands. Uh, even I think, including a lot of the headlines today, suggesting inaccurately uh, that the pill that they want to take away is, of course, uh, birth control and uh, and that type of thing, as opposed to the abortion medication uh, that I mentioned before. I'm Ben Dominich. You've been listening to another edition of the Ben Dominich podcast. I hope that you'll be back for more when we dive back into the fray. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. And join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table, the Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts.